You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So our New Testament reading this morning is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word, James four thirteen through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our Old Testament reading and sermon text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. And put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, it seems that no matter how much we confess your sovereignty, how often we sing songs of our own smallness, we still cling to our lives and cling to the management of our lives as though we can control anything. Um, It keeps us from joy, keeps us from faith, it keeps us from generosity, keeps us from saying thank you for the good gifts you give us in this moment. So I thank you for Solomon, I thank you for this word given to us through Solomon. Lord, I pray that we would learn from you the wisdom that you intend to give us through this text. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know if you remember Y2K. I do. Um, we, uh, I worked in a camp, at a camp in Missouri, and in Missouri, like all other places, um, there are some odd fellows. And uh, there in Missouri, um, I met a guy who was preparing there in 1999 for Y2K. 
And by preparing for Y2K, what I mean by preparing for Y2K is building a kind of fortress with thousands upon thousands of dollars invested in ammo and canned food. He's still eating canned food, I guarantee you. There was uh, around uh, Y2K this vision, um, this warning cast out uh, before the world that the entire universe was going to collapse. Um, We were all going, all the computers were going to crash because somebody had forgotten to program the date correctly um, and none of the computers were going to know what to do and everything in all of the world was just going to freeze. And so as tends to happen in those cases, Lots and lots of people, not just weirdos, um, uh, began to anticipate, try to prepare for, um, try to sequester themselves in different levels, started moving to remote locations, uh, started accumulating for themselves um, all that they thought they would need in order to prepare their families to face the coming dark apocalypse of Y2K. Do you remember that? Were you one of those people? It's okay. I, I think there is a tendency, and it's, it's an interesting tendency, um, particularly among conservative Christians, to constantly be looking at the world around them, constantly putting their finger to the wind and saying, this is it. This is the end of civilization. This is the end of the world. Um, it is time to, remove, to, to move to Wyoming. Um, I don't know why they pick Wyoming instead of Montana. And it is time to build fortresses um, in order to prepare for the coming days. Um, you, you find it online everywhere. For whatever reason, it is clickbait. Uh, it is the constant declaration that the apocalypse is on us. It is time now to withdraw, to save, to be cautious, to be clear, to, to kind of make sure our families are protected and make sure that everything is safe. We must prepare for the coming apocalypse. Look what's happening. It's the end of the world. Um, this is vanity. It's vapor. It's an attempt to shepherd the wind. And it is something that uh, Solomon in this text is going to confront. Not just um, the big kind of obvious uh, reasoning which leads us to think the apocalypse is right now, it's right now upon us. Um, but the kind of everyday reasoning that, that tends to always hedge our bets, that tends to always live and with a fear of what might just be around the corner, what might happen to our homes, what might happen to the stock market, what might happen to our jobs, what might happen um, to our kids playing in the front yard. Um, this, this kind of posture of fear, uh, of, of waiting, of measuring, um, uh, of living a kind of, uh, a kind of life that is geared towards trying to anticipate the troubled future. Solomon in this chapter is going to continue um, his argument, continue to describe for us how do we live in a world like the one that Solomon has described. And in in a world like the one that Solomon has described, one that at least as far as um, our sight can see, as far as exists under the sun or to the horizon, um, within um, the powers of our own sovereignty and control, we have control over almost nothing. We don't know what will happen. And we can't hold on firmly to anything and keep it. And so in a world like that one, you are confronted with 
fundamentally two different ways to live. Two choices, one choice, between two different approaches to living in a world like that one. One approach looks at the world, tries as best, it's can, as, best as it can to assess kind of the, the spirit of the day, the weather, how things are going, what Solomon uses, the language of, of waiting for the clouds to be full of rain, observing the wind, anticipating every kind of tick in the stock market, every political whim that flows down um, the pike, every rumor that comes across Twitter, assesses that world and says, well, in a world as unpredictable as this one, in a world as uncontrollable as this one, I should keep everything as safe as I possibly can. I should orient my life to as high a level of control and safety as I can possibly manage. The other way is to look at a world that is outside of your control and to use Solomon's phrase here, to cast your bread upon the waters. And Solomon's argument in this chapter is the second way to live is the best way to live, the wisest way to live. The first way to live is simply vanity. It's a continuing attempt to find a way to shepherd the wind. It's to hedge your bets against the future. It's to try to make sense of um, your future life without knowing anything about what will come in just a few hours, let alone a few weeks or a few months or a few years. So Solomon's argument, his command in the light of a world like that one is to cast your bread upon the waters. How do you do that? Will you do that having believed the arguments that he's made all the way through chapter 10? That though the world in our hands is vapor, it's mist, if you try to hold on to something, if you try to steer something, if you try to shepherd something, um, you, you won't get anywhere with it. But instead, if you will trust that there is a God who is in the process of making all things beautiful in his time, a God who has appointed days and hours and weeks, a God who directs markets and politics and social upheaval and, and, and cancer cells, a God who directs all of that with perfect and absolute sovereignty. He never loses his grasp on guiding and directing history. Then you're free to cast your bread upon the waters. So make it clear. You have two choices in front of you as you come to terms with the reality that is the nature of the world. One, watch the trees. Wait, wait for the wind to stop. Make sure, absolutely sure, that there's no storm coming. There's no cancer coming. There's no corrupt politician coming. Make absolutely sure you're not going to get mugged in the street. Make absolutely sure you're not going to get in a car wreck before you do anything. Or two, fear God. 
keep his commandments, eat your bread, drink your wine, enjoy your wife, work as hard as you can. In other words, cast your bread on the waters. Send it somewhere. Some of the background for this text, um, we know that during Solomon's reign, um, this phrase, cast your bread upon the waters, Solomon actually established, uh, really for the first time in Israel's history, uh, overseas trade um, with Tarshish. He he would actually send um, ships out, and uh, those ships would return to Israel every three years, usually loaded with gold and spices, as well as, we know, peacocks. Um, because who doesn't need a few good peacocks? You do. Cast your bread on the waters. Um, and, uh, and a lot of, a number of scholars believe that behind this text is Solomon saying, look, send it. Um, he sends ships out into the water. The water was always a scary place for Israel. It was a place where the monsters dwelled. It was a place where um, storms would have come out of nowhere and destroy your boats and destroy all your prophets. And Solomon is saying here, no, Go for it. Send it. Um, Send your boats across the seas. Cast your bread. Send your money. Send your investment. And trust to the Lord. And those, those are the two choices you have. And so we have that background. So I want to consider this phrase, cast your bread. What does he mean there? And we know that some of what this means is interpreted for us in verse 2. Look at it. It says, Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Cast your bread is a metaphor, a picture for um, give yourself away. Invest your money. Invest your talents. Live generously, freely, with all that God has given you. Because you have no idea what's going to come tomorrow. All you know is what's come today. What is in your hand today. So invest it. Give it away. Use it to bless other people. Part of our difficulty in understanding kind of the orientation of Solomon in this text is we have, uh, particularly if you've grown up in kind of a, a pietistic approach to money, a pietistic approach to wealth, is we've tended to separate um, the concepts of generosity and work. Um, work is something you do just for yourself or for your family. You just do it in order to make money, to accumulate wealth. Um, and generosity is something that you do to empty yourself of that wealth. And in the Bible, the two always are actually bound up together. Um, if you'll remember uh, back in Deuteronomy, we, we talked about justice a couple of years ago. And we worked our way through a text in Deuteronomy in which um, the text there is describing a certain approach to wealth and to work that is generous. Um, and in that picture, uh, they're instructing farmers, um, don't, uh, don't push, um, don't, don't, reap all, don't reap all the way to the edge of your field, rather leave the edges of your field um, in order that the poor might come and reap those crops uh, for themselves. There was a kind of generosity there, but it was a generosity in which it was um, kind of a married together, this sort of fruitful work and inviting others into fruitful work um, that wasn't oriented primarily towards um, just yourself, but it was connected to yourself. Um, and so one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to think of our jobs as merely something we do to accumulate wealth for ourselves. But in the Bible, the work that God has given you to do, whatever it may be, is primarily oriented to others. And that work for others leads to blessings for yourself and for your family. 
Does that make sense? In other words, when you go to work on Monday, let's say you're an accountant. I try to pick the hardest job that I can imagine finding meaning in. Um, and if you're an accountant, I know you have, I'm not saying objectively, I'm saying personally. Um, say you're an accountant, you go to work on Monday, the temptation, given kind of the bifurcation of wealth and generosity and work um, that we've kind of built up in our culture, is to go to your job as an accountant on Monday and think, I'm just, uh, you know, doing what accountants do and doing my time thing and they're counting how many hours I do that. And I'm going here and I'm going to do my job on this spreadsheet which is why I have trouble with imagining accounting. Um, although Justin is very gifted at accounting and he's a dear friend and so I'm trying to learn from him, not accounting, but spreadsheets. Um, and you go to work on Monday and you start to work on your spreadsheets. The temptation is to think the work I'm doing now is for me. I'm doing this in order that I can get a paycheck, in order that I can put food on the table, in order that I can pay my mortgage, in order that I can put some money away for, um, for my kids for college, in order that I can maybe have some money for retirement. Um, and that's what I do for me. And then if I'm going to do something that's generous, it has to be outside of that work. See how we kind of separate those two things. In the Bible, the reason why, the real reason why God has given you the job of accountant is in order to serve, in order to be generous. He's given you an innate ability to not grow incredibly bored with Excel spreadsheets and the ability to count things. And he wants you to use those gifts that he's put in your hands to cast them on the waters such that you're wielding those gifts generously for others. And you're going to get paid for it. But the two go together. It's easier to see in certain service industries like being a fireman or a police officer. The very nature of your job is to serve others. Um, and so there, the gener- it's, it's easier to kind of see how these things all belong together. But we tend to bifurcate the two and say generosity is merely giving and work is something I get paid for. But in reality, the two are tied up together. Um, the, the kind of casting your bread on the waters, the kind of generosity that's talked about here doesn't mean you're not paid for it. It doesn't mean that it's just all wealth or resources or time or food going out and nothing coming in. Instead, it's an orientation to say, I'm going to use everything I have in order to bless other people, to bless my children, to bless my family, to bless my neighbors, to, to bless the brothers and sisters in this room. The two belong together. And, and if you begin to separate the two, things are going to get pretty wonky in your life. And so that, with, with that out of the way, to kind of see the two things together, um, generally interpreters of chapter 11 um, fall in one of two places. They either say chapter 11 is all about generosity. Cast your bread on the waters means give your wealth away as much as you possibly can because you don't know what's going to happen anyway, so give it away. And then there's others that say, no, this, this has to do with investments. It has to do with like um, investing your time, your money, your resources um, because you don't know what's going to happen anyway, so use it. Um, use it because something really good might happen with it. And my argument would be um, that it's both. Um, the, the, the command, the, the 
word of wisdom given to us today in this text is in light of the world that we live in, in light of the world where um, you can't manage the wind, if you sit around and wait and watch the wind and try to figure out where the future is going to go or how things are going to, um, how things are going to turn politically or economically or, or whatever, um, or culturally or socially or health-wise, whatever those things are, if you sit around and wait, guess what? Things can, ch- can change on a dime, and they do. So the word, in living a world like that, that one, in a one in which we confess it is governed by a good and holy and sovereign God, spend yourself. Use your wealth. Use your gifts. Whatever God's given you today, wield it. Use it. Cast it on the waters. Because you don't know what trouble may come. The... the the culture, and particularly the church, kind of evangelical culture in our day, has um, split apart the notions of charity and profit. But in reality, the, um, the distinction made in Scripture is not really between charity and profit. It's between hoarding and generosity. So when the rich are condemned in Scripture, it's almost always around two different behaviors. It's never merely about the, the fact that they're wealthy or that they get wealth. It's primarily about the fact that they either hoard it, they don't use it, they don't give it away, they're not generous with it, they just build bigger and bigger and bigger barns, they just buy more and more and more and more and more fields for themselves, never using it for the good of other people, never wielding it, investing it, putting it to work, they just hoard. Or, the other, the other time the rich are condemned in scripture, is when they Um, use their wealth in order to leverage it to gain more unjust wealth, to cheat the poor, cheat those who are poorer than themselves. The the, the separation in Scripture um, is not between charity on one hand and profit on the other. It's between hoarding and unjust gain on the one hand and generosity and using what God has put in your hand today on the other. The central theme of this whole chapter is use what the Lord has given you. Wield it. Wield it for the good of others. Wield it for the blessing of your family. Don't sit and wait for the times to be perfect. They will never be perfect. There's always a potential tragedy right around the corner. No matter how much you ran this week, how much mileage you put in, how healthy your cholesterol numbers are, how great your A1C is, there's a chance you get hit by a car walking out of this service. You might get a diagnosis of cancer this week for reasons inexplicable to anyone you might lose your job and the response to that can either be to hoard can either be to be so driven by fear and anxiety that you try to leverage your wealth in unjust ways to gain more wealth or it can be to entrust yourself to the Lord to give yourself away and to use your wealth to bless other people to use your wealth to see it actually bear fruit 
in the world around us. And by wealth, I don't simply mean money, although I definitely mean money. I also mean your time. I also mean your emotional energy. I also mean your home. I also mean food. I mean everything that God has given you. So given that is kind of the big heading on this chapter, I want us to point out, I want to point out just a couple of more things as he kind of spells this out in more and more specific ways. And we've kind of looked at verses one through four. I want to then um, jump down to verse five where he kind of concludes his reasoning for that argument before spelling out some more details for us. He says, as you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. But what it takes to live that way in the world is a kind of humility that acknowledges, I don't know how almost anything works, but God does. I I can assess how certain things are going. I can look at what's right in front of me, but I don't know what God is doing with this thing. Um, It it is, uh, um, yet again, not quite as bad as Y2K, but um, uh, again, the, the... you know, apocalyptic prophets of our day declaring this is the end of America. This is um, the end of Western civilization. This is the end of everything. How do you know that? What if God is using this particular cultural moment and a, a, a thousand things we can see and a billion things we can't to bring about renewal and revival and transformation and the great, most beautiful season in the history of our country or our city. You and I don't know any of those things. We don't even know how um, God gets life into a child in the womb of its mom. Beyond the birds and the bees. Like We don't know how this world works. We certainly aren't wise enough or, um, or, or have enough perception or prophetic insight enough to know exactly what God is up to. Um, if you look to the scriptures, one of the things that God loves to do again and again and again to bring tragedy and chaos and destruction in order to bring life. To, to bring Israel to the brink and then to bring renewal. To bring apparent destruction and death and judgment. And right in the middle of it, to bring along a king who repents, tears down the idols, brings about righteousness again. Like you and I have no idea what this particular moment means in the large scope of what God is doing in history. Uh, frankly, you and I don't, don't have much sense of what this precise moment means in the history of our own lives. Like I look back upon moment upon moment in my life, like particularly dark moments, devastating moments. A handful of them. I look back at those moments and say, in the moment, it's not, and my life's going nowhere. It's just collapsing. This is the most difficult thing I can imagine. And then right through on the other side, the actual meaning, what God was actually up to in those difficult times, in those crisis moments, was the most beautiful work ever accomplished by God in my life. That isn't to say to you, you can be guaranteed that everything's just going to work out just peachy. But it is to say to you, 
You and I should be far more humble in trying to make assessments about where history is headed or where something as complex as society or Western civilization is headed, particularly when we have a hard time making sense of this particular moment in our lives. To live this way with joy and not just wrapped up with anxiety and fear requires a kind of humility that recognizes there is a sovereign God and I don't know exactly how he works. I don't know why he does what he does precisely when he does it. But I do know that he makes everything beautiful in its time. I do know that he's gracious and he's good. Even when this moment is hard and I can't make sense of it. And that he loves He loves to to look at absolute, utter defeat and bring about joy and and resurrection and life and victory. And so we live with a kind of humility facing the world and acknowledging and saying, I don't know how God is going to get us from here to beautiful, but he's promised to do so And I don't know what's next. Maybe God will turn left. Maybe God will turn right. Uh, Maybe he wants to lead us into further destruction or more difficulties. Or maybe he wants to salvage the thing right now and bring about resurrection and renewal in ways that we can't even imagine. But what I can do is cast my bread, wield what God has given me right now in generous ways, in risky ways, in good ways. And so he says, in the morning, sow your seed. Do the work that God's given you right now. Your approach to work, your approach to life should be guided by, yes, you should keep in mind that um, this isn't to say never consider the future, but it is to say if your primary orientation is to hedging your bets about the future, you're trying to shepherd the wind. You're trying to tell my cat where to go. And he will not go there. I've even tried some tricks this week with treats. Cat doesn't care. Comes, takes the treats, leaves. Um, Like you can't shepherd the wind. So stop trying to shepherd the wind. Live wisely, but wisely doesn't mean you orient everything towards some unknown future. It means with whatever God's put in your hands right now, put it to work. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your wealth, your food, your home. Wield those things for the blessing of others. Wield those things for the good of your neighbor. Wield those things as an investment in what God is up to in your life. It says light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In other words, don't stay in your bed. Don't stay in your room. I'm waiting for the condition to be perfect. The sun's come up, get to work. Now he moves in the last verses here and in the first part of chapter 12 to begin to discuss um, kind of the the, the differences and and how this relates particularly to um, those who are young and those who are old. And his main word at the heart of all of this is is essentially twofold. And and it's, um, I hope, a a very liberating word for you this morning. 
It says in verse eight, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. If God gives you many, many years and you don't get killed this week, great. Give thanks to God, God and enjoy this week. You didn't die. Good. Enjoy it. Don't just live afraid that next week you will. Instead, you lived this week, rejoice. And then maybe you'll live next week. And if you get to live next week, rejoice. But the temptation is to get so wrapped up in, I'm, I'm alive now, but what if, what, if, what if I die next week? Well, then you, that's stupid. You're, you're, you're missing the glory of this particular moment that God has given you on this particular day. You're missing the gifts of God for the sake of anxiety and fear and trying to shepherd the wind. Then he has this interesting verse in verse 9. He says, rejoice, O young man. Now, this is a relative term. So if you're not um, at the end of your days, as he describes in chapter 12, you are a young man. So I think that's everybody in this room. You're a young man, even you gray hairs which is increasingly me. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk, this is an interesting phrase, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. He puts together two ideas, one which is deeply misunderstood in our culture um, and and the other uh, just kind of denied by our culture. The first, he says this, um, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Um, there is a certain kind of anxious Christian that faces every decision in front of them with a great deal of fear, saying, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I choose what God doesn't want me to choose? What, and, and we're not talking here about things revealed in the word of God. We're not talking about right and wrong moral things um, even things pertaining to wisdom. We're just talking about, like, should I buy this house or this house? Should I eat Chipotle for lunch or should I make a ham sandwich for lunch? And they get all bent out of shape with anxiety of like, well, what if I marry this person and they're the wrong person? And by wrong person, they don't mean they're not compatibly scripturally, um, they're not aligned with the things of God, but rather they're just like, They have this idea in their head that God has chosen for them one particular person and they could really screw that thing up. So they live with this constant anxiety um, that they're going to make some wrong choice somewhere. They're going to pick the wrong thing for lunch. They're going to pick the wrong job. They're going to pick the wrong city. They're going to pick the wrong house. Um, And the result will be that the entire time-space universe collapses and all of their life comes unraveled. The heart of this text is don't live that way. You can't figure it out anyway. And so what does he say? Walk in the ways of your heart. Um, You're free. Isn't this wonderful? You're free. Do you desire that job over this job? To live in this city over this city? To buy this house instead of this house? All of the things considered. Law of God. Wisdom. Can you afford it? (laughs) What does your heart desire? You're free. Now, what he doesn't mean by this is whatever you feel, do. We live in a culture that has taken um, this idea and kind of 
pushed it all the way into the corner so that um, your heart, your emotions, your feelings, your desires determine right and wrong. Um, that gets counterbalanced in this, um, in this verse by saying, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, like God does judge us on the basis of his law, on the basis of what's right and wrong, on the basis of what he has declared to be good or evil. But, but all of that has been clearly declared to us in his word. Now, given that, and keeping in mind that God is the judge of all the earth, what does your heart desire? What do you want to do? What seems best? Well, then do it. You can't control or shepherd or vapor um, the, the vapor. You can't make your life go exactly the way you want your life to go. So given what God has put in front of you, what he's put in your hand, do what you desire, keeping in mind that there is a God who is judge of all the earth. Keeping in mind that there's a God who is gracious and merciful and kind and good. But walk in the ways of your heart. Remove vexation. As you face these choices, as you look at your job, if you try to figure out what to do with your money, if you try to figure out what stock to buy because what stock is really going to recover fast, um, if you're trying to figure out what neighborhood to move in so that you can make the biggest profit when you sell your house in a couple of years, um, like, like, don't live under that sense of anxiety and vexation. I love the word vexation. You, you can't shepherd the wind. You can't control the markets. You can't control um, where your job's going to go. So remove it from you. Put away the pain or the evil from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vapor. You won't be able to hold on to them forever. So use them now while you have them. This is the word of Solomon to us. Living in an uncontrollable world. Where glorious and beautiful things happen. And where horrifically terrible things happen. Cast your bread on the waters. Get to work. Stop hedging your bets. Joyfully live the day, all the days that God has given you. Receive them as a gift and rejoice. Knowing that God is judge, knowing that God is righteous, knowing that every good thing in front of you, has been given to you by God, a God who never tires of giving. Give your life away. Give your life away, not because you're trying to earn something, not because you're trying to hedge your bets so that God will give you something later. Instead, give your life away because this is the life that God has given you right now. I I was praying this week and I, I wanted to, speaks particularly to fathers in this room. But one, one of the realities that that is just there in parenting, in marriage, is, is a tendency to try to hedge your bets with your involvement with your kids. Um, oftentimes, at least in my life, it was, it was geared around trying to save my energy for the work I had to do the next day. Um, for, for some 
men, it, it tends to be like, well, I need to work extra hard at this job um, because I need to make sure I've got the money to cover my kids over here. And so I'm going to work 70, 80 hour weeks. I'm just never going to be home. I'm never going to see my family. And, and, and I just want to uh, call you to th- this, cast your bread upon the waters is not just about your work. It's not just about financial investment. Um, I'm actually leaving right after this church service to take my son to college. Here's the the reality that I just want to give you this morning. Your kids will not always live with you. They won't always be in your home. You won't always have the opportunity to get on the ground and wrestle with them. You won't always have the opportunity to take them out for coffee. You won't always have the opportunity to, to have the hard conversation or have the easy conversation or just to laugh. And the temptation for us is to save those things, to um, kind of hedge our bets, whether that's because of our job or because of our energy levels, our emotional energy or our finances, whatever the thing might be, to kind of hedge our bets around our kids and try to save ourselves a little bit. Let me just tell you what God has given you today is your kids, your marriage, your family. Yes, your job too. Don't miss an opportunity to cast your bread on the waters with your kids because you think there'll be another day. There'll be another week. There'll be another month. Or what if I do that and then I'm up late and I get, well, as I did a couple weeks ago with my 18-year-old son, terrible painful carpet burns on the edge of my toes from wrestling. Don't hedge your bets. Cast your bread on the waters with your kids right now. Now, in your marriage, cast your bread on the waters right now. And yes, with your job, cast your bread on the waters right now. Rejoice in the day that God has given you. Rejoice in the children that God has given you. Rejoice in the job that God has given you. Rejoice in whatever dinner God has given you tonight, even if it's beans and rice. Put some Tabasco on that thing and say, thank you, Lord. Receive from the hand of God all the gifts that he's given to you and throw yourself into them with all of your might. How do we live this way? We come to this table. We remember the cross of Jesus. Remember that he said, unless a seed dies, it can't bring forth life. We live looking at these things, trusting in these things, believing in these things. We live within with a real resolve to trust in the sovereign power of a God who is good and who is gracious. Let's pray and prepare for communion.